0: This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. My name is Alex Rawls. This is my podcast about Christmas music. This week, in a special episode, I take a deep dive into the new album, A Sentimental Christmas, with Nat King Cole and Friends, Cole Classics Reimagined. It's an album that follows in the footsteps of Natalie Cole's version of Unforgettable from 1991, which creates a duet between her and her late father, Nat King Cole. This time, producer Jay Landers, and arranger George Calandrelli created new arrangements for some of Cole's Christmas classics and added material to frame some of his non-Christmas songs as holiday-appropriate. Landers also created some new duets for the occasion, pairing Cole with new singing partners John Legend, Johnny Mathis, Kristen Chenoweth, Callum Scott, and Gloria Estefan. Today, I'm talking to Landers about the hows and whys of a sentimental Christmas, Then, I'll talk to Kristen Chenoweth and Callum Scott about their experiences. Alexander Scott is also back this week to talk about Christmas music with one of my favorite discoveries of 2021, Iceland's Dottie Frere. We'll start today with a word from our sponsor, Car Floats. Car Floats sells reusable, removable fabric stickers for your car. Here in New Orleans, costuming is a way of life, and people look for occasions to dress up, not only at Mardi Gras and Halloween. Car Floats believes you ought to be able to dress up your car to match your mood or the season, too. They have designs suitable for the upcoming holidays, but also ones that simply reflect your personal sense of style and whimsy. For Halloween, I had ghosts on my car. Now that Christmas is upon us, I'm rocking ornaments. My daughter helps me put them on and loves doing it. You can peel them off put them back on their paper backing, and then store them until you're ready to use them again. And so far, my daughter's less interested in that part. Want to see what you can do for your car? Visit Car Floats at car-floats.com. Put 12 songs, the number 12, the word songs, as one word in the promo box at checkout. Get 25% off your first purchase. Car Floats are art in motion. Producer Jay Landers has worked with a crazy roster of talent that includes Barbara Streisand, Johnny Mathis, Bette Midler, Mary J. Blige, Celine Dion, Harry Connick Jr., Madonna, Patti LaBelle, Josh Groban, lots more. He has has recorded countless Christmas albums, including ones with Mary J. Blige, Roberta Flack, Rod Stewart, lots more. This season, he also produced Happiness is Christmas for Kristen Chenoweth. We'll start with a new version of the Christmas song from A Sentimental Christmas with Nat King Cole and John Legend. Then we'll be back on the other side with Jay Landers.
1: Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose You Yuletide carols Being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows. Everyone knows. A turkey and some mistletoe have to make, help to make the season bright. Oh, tiny time.
0: So how did this album come to be?
2: We always think about making Christmas albums um, starting at the beginning of a year so that we can have them prepared and released for the end of the year. So uh, I was um, working on an uh, album with Kristen Chenoweth, a Christmas album with Kristen Chenoweth. And, of course, I was uh, listening to all sorts of music for references about Finding Songs for Chris, uh, Kristen. And uh, it's mandatory to listen to the Nat King Cole classic album called The Christmas Song. Um, so I was listening to it, and, and as classic of an album as it is and as beloved of an album it, it is, a couple of things came to my attention which I hadn't thought about before. One is about half of the album uh, of that original Nat King Cole album is a little, I don't know the right word for it, but uh, I should say the arrangements are a bit turgid. And some of the song selections are not what I would like to hear at Christmas. Um, And I can be rather specific. There's one title I can't remember. Let's see, was it, uh, one song is sung in German. Oh, Tannenbaum. Right. And a lot of the songs are really short, like as in a minute long. So uh, that's the first thought that sort of struck me. Uh, And then uh, I was a big fan of um, the Natalie Cole, Nat King Cole uh, duet of Unforgettable, uh, where the record producer David Foster uh, took... Nat's original vocals and created new arrangements and created a, a duet for Natalie and Nat to sing out of a song that had been originally recorded as a solo. So using that as my kind of jumping off point, I thought it would be fun if the tracks existed, if I'm sorry, if the multi-tracks existed, that we could reorchestrate some of these songs, take Uh, songs that are short on his album and combine them into medleys so they feel a little bit more rounded and full, Um, and then create some duets with contemporary, well, I wouldn't say contemporary singers, but create some duets with some uh, established singers who had an emotional connection to Nat King Cole's music. So with all of those things in mind, uh, I presented it to the, um, uh, to Capitol Records, and they are always looking for new ways to present classic material, Um, and so that's sort of the long answer, which you're going to chop up into a cogent 30-second answer.
0: No, I'm not, because that's a good answer. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but, we'll but, be, the because there's a lot in there that I want to chew on a little bit. Okay, one of the things I think is interesting is that I had never thought about is that the length is an issue. That is it that is it that when a song is too short, that it somehow feels less substantial, or feels or less developed, or, or is a longer song just a contemporary ear? because you think about how many classic rock and roll songs were two and a half minutes. You think about, obviously, like I'm, I'm based in New Orleans, and so I think about how many Fats Domino songs barely clocked in over two minutes. And you think about, I'm going to bet that satisfaction comes in at maybe three minutes. And um, And so I wonder if this is just a function of is this a function of contemporary ears and that we now feel like you have to get a certain length to feel like it's something
2: sad, by the way, satisfaction's 347. go Oh,
0: wow. It feels faster than that. So <laughs> I, 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 I watched you checking it. That was great.
2: <laughs> well, because when you said it, I went, I wonder if that's right or not. <laughs> yeah. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> no, but uh, I understand your point. Uh, first of all, um, And there's a couple of ways to answer it. The the most immediate way is I'm listening as a huge fan of Nat King Coles, but I'm also just listening as a person who's just enjoying music. And it felt short to me. The recordings felt short to me. Uh, In the case of rock and roll and, you know, the classic two and a half minute song, uh, those songs, those specific songs, that rock and roll era that you're mentioning where singles were short uh, and yet perfect. Um, It had to do with getting a hit. Uh, A Christmas album uh, is not, for the most part, designed to get a hit single. It's designed to be a pleasant listening experience or an emotionally satisfying listening experience from beginning to end. Um, Of course, radio stations cherry-pick their favorite contemporary songs and classic songs, Um, but for me, it just felt like it would be really great to hear, and I'm trying to remember the titles here, like Deck the Hall and Joy to the World. They complement each other uh, so easily as a medley uh, that it just seemed like a, uh, a fun thing to do, and also because we were because I had decided to turn five of the songs on the album into duets, the length of the duet, you couldn't really have a conversational duet uh, in a two minute song because each singer needs their chance to shine. Uh, So that's why some of them are longer, but um, does that answer your question?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think you, you appreciate that one of the, one of the sort of questions that you're, your project raises is to some degree how we hear, you know, you know, this classic music. And in some degree is kind of implied the distance between where audiences were when this music was first recorded mm-hmm. and where we are today. And, yeah. you know, and the fact is that when you first, when you heard these at that moment, I assume that these songs felt like fully like fully completed statements. But I agree with you. I feel like there's some of Nat King Cole's songs, uh, uh, the, some of these classics now feel like they go by so quickly that yeah. the, uh, unless you sort of plug in, it can go by almost before you wake up and sure. that you can miss miss the weight, miss the warmth as it sort of slides by because it simply goes so quick.
2: Yeah, and going back to your, you know, to your original question of, I think which which was how or why did I come up with this project? Uh, the other the other reason, and I and it's a ticklish one because I don't want to be uh, critical of Nat's one and only classic Christmas album. I'm not suggesting that our album is better; it's different, and um, but. To be uh, entirely candid, uh, I felt like the arrangements by the you know legendary Ralph Carmichael, who on- only passed away about two weeks ago, I think, um, were a little stodgy. And so uh, there's a very fine line between, and I often I often think about this because. Uh, I, had, I went to a college uh, for a semester in Rome, and I had many occasions to go visit the Sistine Chapel. And when I returned to Rome maybe 20 years later and went again to visit the Sistine Chapel, it looked like a cartoon of the Sistine Chapel because it had been cleaned.
1: Wow.
0: So
2: the whole world was used to seeing this kind of, you know, pantina of golden ages Uh, but now they cleaned it to the way it looked originally uh, but it didn't have the emotional impact for me because I was so accustomed to seeing it the way it had been for hundreds of years Sure. Um, then I think about uh, I know this gets a little esoteric but I think about um, the Beatles album I was thinking about the Beatles album Let It Be Uh, because they've recently reissued it uh, with a deluxe series. Um, But when the original album came out, I was a Beatles fan and I thought it was a great album. But evidently the Beatles didn't think it was a great album. So they went and many, many, many years later, I think spearheaded by Paul McCartney, they reissued the Let It Be Naked album, which took away all of the Phil Spector wall of sound effects on the original album. So I think it's okay to revisit songs, but I wanted to do it judiciously. So it didn't compromise people's emotional connections to the original. I wanted it to be the same, but better. Sure. Or the same, but different.
0: Right. I have to say one of the places where you do it and you talk about the, uh, talked about the arrangements earlier, and there's a point when I had to stop and literally AB the original and the new tracks because uh, Jorge, uh, was it Jorge Calandrelli? Is that yes. right? That, mm-hmm. that his arrangements sound like they could have been written for the original. And it wasn't until I went back and checked. And, and I agree, there's a stiffness. I'd for, I, I realized there are parts of that album I completely connect to, and there are parts of that album that, that get by me. And I realized there is a kind of a formality uh, to those arrangements that doesn't really doesn't pop for me either. But I was thinking did you, that there's a, you know, a warmth and if not, and, and you know, there's a warmth to those arrangements that I thought really work, uh, the, the new ones. Did you all have ideas or thoughts going into it about how you what you wanted those arrangements to do?
2: We did. Um, uh, You mentioned George Calandrelli, Jorge Calandrelli. Um, And I asked George to uh, arrange and co-produce with me uh, because he is really, he's one of the few arrangers um, out there today who are equally sophisticated about classical pop and what I would call traditional Music, uh, traditional being Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, Nat King Cole, Ella Fitzgerald, that those that ilk of artists, Johnny Mathis, um, so he seemed like the right guy for the job. There was a there was a technical challenge, which was, and I don't want to get too deep into the woods with you, and you can cut this out if you want. But there were two challenges to this record. First of all, as I mentioned earlier. Um, we needed to confirm that that Nat's vocal was isolated because for the majority of his classic records, he sat in the studio with the musicians surrounding him. Uh, So if you wanted to lower the violin, you were lowering his vocal too, or raising the trumpet, you were raising his vocal too. So there was no separation. As luck would have it, this album was one of the, I think it may have been the first album that he ever recorded uh, in an isolated vocal booth. So that's, that's what the research showed we would find. When we got the physical tapes in hand, the original masters, and we put them up on the console, we discovered that Nat was one of many singers who put one ear of the headphone on their head and the other kind of rests off of their ear. So his vocals would bleed into his vocal mic, and we had music tracks, but... um, I'm sorry, we had vocal tracks, but you could always hear the music coming through his vocal mics. So it wasn't as isolated as we had been initially led to believe. This has relevance because it somewhat dictates the chords you can use in the arrangement because it has to be compatible with what is there. Otherwise, there'll be kind of a strange rub that would sound like a mistake. So uh, so by necessity and also by design, we wanted to keep the arrangements respectful and close to the originals, but for lack of a better term, freshened up. Refreshed, I right. guess would be the right word to say. Right. Uh, so uh, that was the technical challenge. Um, and then again, choosing which songs we wanted to hear. Nat only recorded one Christmas album, he recorded a few Christmas singles. There was the novelty song, All I Want for Christmas Is My Two Front Teeth, um, a couple of others, but not not of any great substance. The real record was this Christmas album, which he recorded, which Capitol Records released, I think, four versions of. There was the original record, I think was called The Magic of Christmas, and it had every song on it except the Christmas song. And then when he went and recorded the Christmas song, uh, sorry, and I'm... I don't want to mix too many facts in here, but he recorded the Christmas song four times before the version that we all know and love today. Uh, One was just a trio. One was with a small orchestra. One was a large orchestra, but different arranger. And then finally they settled on the uh, the stereophonic version, they call it, with uh, Ralph Carmichael. Wow. Uh, so when that song hit so big, they added it to the magic of Christmas and released it again. And, um, you know, a a little controversial, I would say, but, uh, worth noting that these albums didn't feature Nat on the cover. They were pictures of, um, and I'd have to double check this or you could double check it, but I think they're like a white couple. Oh, Really? on the cover, you know, sitting at a table enjoying a Christmas dinner or something like that. I'd have to... I would have to double-check that for you. Right. Um, But um, here, I can actually double-check it for you right now very easily. Uh, Yeah, the original... The Magic of Christmas... I'm sorry, not a couple. It was a a white... uh, Two children, a boy and a girl around a Christmas tree, two white kids. But... In any event, when he finally put out his the the, the album we all know and love, he's sitting on an easy chair with a brown cover. uh, He's front and center.
1: I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day, on Christmas Day I saw three ships come sailing in on Christmas Day in the morning On
3: Christmas Day
1: in the morning And what was in those ships all three on Christmas Day
0: so one thing occurred to me is a technical question. I mean, I know you made the, you made, you lengthened the tracks. Did that mean at some point slowing down his vocals? Did we have, did you have to slow down or, or uh, and adjust his vocals pitch wise or?
2: No, we didn't do, we didn't touch his vocal in any way other than perhaps to take some echo off or add some echo in the duets so that it would sound like he and the contemporary duet partner were singing shoulder to shoulder. Okay. Um, no, we did not uh, extend or tamper with the vocals in any way. Okay.
0: Now, the, uh, you call the album a sentimental Christmas, and obviously sentimental is partly a play on his own lyrics, his own t- song title. Did that also, did the idea of sentimental play into your conception of the music and um, of the
2: album? Absolutely. Um, I think of Christmas as a sentimental time of year. Um, and uh, and also, so, so it was a good word for an, a Christmas album title, a sentimental Christmas, I thought. Um, but it was also a function of the fact that once we had combined certain songs from Nat's Christmas album and cherry picked a couple of songs that had not been on the album that we found as strange B-sides of singles. Like there's a a kind of a curious song called the little boy that Santa Claus forgot. It's, uh, it's a bittersweet kind of jazz inflected tune. That was a, I believe a B-side of a single, uh, that they had released. Um, but, I also started to think, and I've, I've produced a lot of Christmas albums. And one of the things that I love doing uh, is finding songs that were not specifically written for Christmas uh, and recontextualizing them in, uh, for a Christmas album. So, um, oh, I remember doing a record with the Manhattan transfer, where we took the Beatles song good night from the white album and turned it into a Christmas song. Um, you know, famously, songs like I've Got My Love to Keep Me Warm, which is on a million Christmas records, That is, there's nothing Christmas about that right. song. It just mentions snow. So um, I was thinking about how to capture that sentimental feeling and add some familiar songs from uh, Nat's repertoire, but in a Christmas setting. So for the song... Um, the very thought of you. Now, that's not a Christmas song, but it is a certainly a sentiment that would be expressed at Christmas. So, uh, George Calandrelli and I, uh, decided to write an introductory verse, uh, where the, where Kristen Chenoweth sings, I don't need a Christmas tree. I don't need anything at all. I just need you. And, um, and then, when you're not here and then she sings the very thought of you and it becomes a conversation uh, as opposed to a soliloquy right and uh and then at the beginning of the song one of my all-time favorite songs is called a nightingale Sang in Berkeley square it's a jazz standard Uh, it's been recorded by sinatra ella everybody has recorded the song The introduction, Ralph Carmichael's introduction starts off with a quotation of Jingle Bells right before the vocal comes in. So, and it's a wintry, frosty setup, uh, wintry, frosty um, scene that the lyrics set up of a couple strolling in London um, in the winter. So it just seemed christmas uh, Christmassy, right. for lack of a better yeah. word. Uh, and also a good opportunity to kind of surprise the listener so it's not the same 12 familiar Christmas songs that are just about on everyone's album today.
1: Was magic abroad in the air? There were angels dining at the Ritz, and a nightingale sign in Bobley Square. Is there
0: something about? Nat King Cole as an artist or his voice, um, that kind of invites you to do this because I'm not aware that of a lot of other artists where people have gone back in and taken songs that they performed and remade them into duets. Um, I mean, there is, uh, from 2008, there is Elvis Presley Christmas duets, which did that by adding in a number of country singers to uh, to Elvis songs. I'm
2: familiar with that album, yeah. But,
0: but I can't think of a lot of other versions. And I wondered if there's something about Nat King Cole that makes this idea seem not just practical but logical.
2: Well, he has um, endured as an artist for... How many years now? Yeah, seventy-five years, something like that. Uh, because, you know, there are there's that old expression, you know, which is applied to many of the greats. There's like there's good singing, great singing, and then there's Nat King Cole. Right. Or you could substitute a handful of names at the end of that sentence, but he certainly is in that pantheon of all time greats. He there's some warmth. That comes through his voice, that nurtures us. Um, He's he's so articulate. He's so heartfelt. When he sings the song, it's not like he's reading it off a page. It's like he's really thinking it for the first time, thinking the thoughts for the first time. Um, So, you know, like Ella, like Sinatra, um, like Tony Bennett. Johnny Mathis, uh, Barbara Streisand, Ella Fitzgerald, if I already said her name, I'm sorry, uh, Shirley Horn. There, there are, you know, a number of greats that you could say this to, that there's something about their voice that just communicates. Um, you know, and uh, you could say it about Bob Dylan too. He doesn't have a traditionally beautiful voice like Pavarotti, but he communicates. And and I think that's what separates the the good from the great.
0: Yeah. I have to say, for uh, picking up on what you just said, I my in my own mind, and you do with this what you will. But I was thinking, unlike Sinatra, when you hear Sinatra sing, no matter the subject, Sinatra is always the subtext. You never forget what an amazing singer, because he won't let you forget what an amazing singer he is as part of his genius, but also part of, you know, just part of his art. Whereas, as you said, I I feel like when I listen to, to the Nat King Cole versions.
2: Yeah, no, that's an interesting, uh, I'm not sure about Ella, uh, but as far as Sinatra goes, uh, it's definitely, you know, Frank's world and we just live in it. (laughs) Um, so I think that's a very, a, a very uh, astute observation. Um, you know, there are there are certain actors who kind of disappear into the roles they're creating, and then there are actors who are the role. Uh, you know, um, The Rock is The Rock.
0: Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am so proud to be a part of a podcast that gets to, uh, the, gets to Nat King Cole and The Rock. There you go. <laughs> so, how did you decide who uh, to partner him up with on this album? Well, uh,
2: we're now going to take a journey into the uh, labyrinth of the A and R mind, slightly insane. Uh, when we were casting the. Uh, duet partners, as well as the behind the scenes players, arranger and engineer, uh, I wanted to find people who had an affinity uh, for Nat, a natural affinity. Um, So in the case of Gloria Estefan, when I asked her, she, before I could even form the whole question, she said, yes, he's my favorite singer. I grew up listening to Nat King Cole in Cuba My mother always felt it was my destiny for me to sing as a 12-year-old child with Nat King Cole. Uh, So she had a real connection uh, to his music. Um, When I sat with John Legend, he, in the most articulate way, uh, outlined kind of a lineage from uh, Nat King Cole to Johnny Mathis to... I think we jumped ahead to um, Nat, to Donny Hathaway. Uh, and he, he, he mentioned a number of singers who he felt kind of cut the path for him to walk down. Um, and he cited Nat King Cole as somebody who he took inspiration from not only as a singer, but also as a pianist. Nat was a brilliant pianist. Uh, and uh, so there was a natural... I call it affinity for um, for Nat. Um, that was John Legend. Johnny Mathis um, waxed eloquently telling me that when he was a young guy, he had occasion to meet Nat and that Nat was extremely helpful and encouraging uh, of him pursuing a career in music. And he remained friendly with him um, throughout Nat's career. and then of course he sang uh, duets with Natalie. So he was really uh, he really knew Nat King Cole. and so there was a quite, um, and you can hear a lot of Nat in Johnny Mathis. Uh, um, so there was again, there was another connection there was, uh, Who am I reading off here? Uh, so anyway, that's the, the gist of it.
1: The halls with bows of holly, Fa la 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 la. Tis the season to be jolly. Fa la 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 la. Done we now our gay apparel. Fa la 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 Troll the ancient yuletide carol. Fa la 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 la.
2: George Calandrelli, our arranger, uh, has arranged the last, I'm gonna say, ten Tony Bennett albums. Uh, So he really has a deep understanding of how singers work and that the arrangement has to be in support of the singer. It can't be just a fancy, great arrangement that has nothing to do with the singer. It's always in support of the singer. Uh, And the orchestra has to breathe like the singer's breathing. And then our engineer, David Reitzis, uh, was the mixer of the Natalie Cole Nat King Cole Ah. duet. Uh, So he really understood how to, you know, blend the old and the new voices.
0: As the producer, you have to also think about the music as a business proposition and not simply as an artistic one. What made you think that there was a market for this kind of treatment of Cole's Christmas music?
2: I was speaking with the heads of Capitol Records and they were telling me that year in, year out, they've got the data to prove it. Um, Christmas music uh, as a genre is eternally vibrant, eternally healthy. And if there's anything that I could do to think of um, to enhance one of their albums or enhance some of the music in their catalog, I should say, the Capital Catalog, um, that I should try to think of something. So it was, uh, I guess if there was a business side of it, it was just recognizing that the market is eternally looking for new, uh, as well as celebrating its past. And also I should mention uh, for, for listeners who aren't intimately familiar with the history of Matt King Cole, um, most people, I think when they think of Hollywood, California, one of the things they think of is the famous Capitol Records building. It's in every travelogue about Hollywood, um, which looks like a, a tall disc of, a tall um, record player, you know, with discs on it, on a spindle, uh, the way we used to load our albums back in the day. Uh, so Capitol Records Uh, started, I think, in the 1940s, I think. Sounds right. Yeah, and they had a traditional office building on Hollywood Boulevard, and when they became very successful due to the music of Nat King Cole and others, but by far Nat was their biggest seller, they had the wherewithal to build this iconic tower in Hollywood, the Capitol Tower. When they did the ribbon-cutting ceremony, like around 1956 or something like that, the press called it the house that Nat built. Such was his power as an artist uh, in terms of his the number of records that he sold. Um, so he was right up there with the greatest of the greats in terms of his popularity, um, and uh, so it. And his and his catalog has continued to sell incredibly well through the years in every country in the world so he seemed it seemed like a good opportunity to have a some have a record that would speak to the world not just the united states
0: This year's Eurovision contest made me a fan of Daddy Frere. The economy of his songs appeals to me, as does the 80s-influenced synth-pop. I went down the Daddy Frere rabbit hole and found a Christmas song he recorded in 2020, Every Moment is Christmas with You. And a week ago, while looking for that track, I discovered a new Christmas song, Something Magical. They struck me as songs that singer Alexandra Scott would like, so I sent them to her so we could talk about them today.
4: We've been together for a decade now, still every day I'm loving you more. If I could do it all again, I'd probably do it all the same as before. I don't want to know what happened if I never had your love. How did it become myself before I met you?
0: So, Alexandra, I sent you a link to two songs by the Icelandic rock band Daddy Freyr. Uh, the new Something Magical and last year's um, Every Day is Christmas with You. What'd you think?
3: I think you should go first. Okay. I'm interested to hear
0: you have to say. Okay. Um, good enough. Just to give people a background here that uh we that I discovered Dottie Frere uh, watching Eurovision this year, where they were the runner up, and um, one of the things that i I, I loved about the group the, right away was that they are is that the songs were all very much about domesticity uh that ten years is about having been with him singing to his wife who I've been with you ten years and and the, and the chorus is, how does it keep getting better? And the song mm. Think About Things, uh, the song they uh, recorded for the 2020 Eurovision, was uh, about wanting to talk to her and listen to her and wanting to know what she thinks. And so, right off the bat, I was intrigued by that. And, and I like the songs, and that helps a heck of a lot. And then, um, oh, this summer at one point, we drove to Houston And uh, my daughter, Clara, uh, loves Dottie Frayer. And so she spent much of the drive between New Orleans and Houston on YouTube tracking, going down a Dottie Frayer YouTube hole and reporting covers that they did. And one of the things is they're not only do they have a, a video for 10 years where they basically it's a monster movie where they appear as essentially Voltron. Uh, the band members all come together as Voltron to go and stop a monster through a dance contest. But there's also a video about the making of that. And essentially, the band is also kind of a, a craft project. And everybody in the group comes together in their sort of house in the country to make everything from the, all the props and costumes. And they act all the parts uh, Dottie is the, uh, is the Voltron character. Uh, his wife plays the monster, the giant monster he, uh, he has to defeat. And so everything about this is sort of homemade and charming with 80s dance funk attached. And so that is very me. Now they had, we now have two Christmas videos and songs and songs. Yes. Uh, And the new one is something magical, which does so many things I like. Partly, it's about the. Let's hear it first, and then we can talk about what it is. I can't believe that it's happening
4: again, just like last year. And the year before that, and the year before that, and the year before that.
0: So what I find charming about this is partly the belief in the ineffable that there's just something magical about Christmas that interests me doesn't. And and that if you go through the whole song is to a great degree grounded in, in the tradition. And as you said at one point, there's something soothing about the repetition and one of the, and, uh, And that idea always intrigues me about Christmas, how Christmas is almost never experienced as an individual event. When you you have a Christmas experience, it almost always, at some level, connects you to previous ones, previous good ones, previous bad ones. How is this different? And differences become meaningful. Differences, in some ways, all end up connecting them. This was the year we did it this way. That was the year we did it that way. And so that strikes me as a really smart, interesting thought. Um, and, and obviously it lines up with part of the way I think about Christmas and is electronic dance funk, which also again, works for me. What do you think? Where are you with this?
3: I, I've come to like it. It, it didn't grab me immediately. And I'm still not entirely sure why, because it mixes up a lot of things that I do like there are, homages to craftwork and to ABBA, and I think I got, I heard the line, there is something magical, and I thought, well, you're telling me, but you haven't, you haven't really said anything to make me see it. Um, it was just a show don't tell response, um, and I still can't say that I fully see it, but I get that Tati or Dadi or um, however the heck it's pronounced, um, does. And I like that sort of Scandinavian sensibility um, that comes through of sort of playing it like it's ironic and then it's not ironic at all. Yes. Because it's a very similar song. Both of them are.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, Yes. I mean, there's things like, uh, you know, in something magical. So when I'm here with my baby, 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 baby. baby you know, yeah, yes. It, that it's it's clearly silly, but it is at the same time being there with his with his baby is clearly also very important and part of the magic. Mm-hmm. Um, that the relationship is part of what makes it go.
3: Um, I had another thought and have promptly forgotten it. So it must not have been that important. Oh, it's about his voice. It, it's it's an interesting recording choice to me to take what's clearly a beautiful voice and affect it so that it sounds a little bit more, a little bit less beautiful, a little more robotic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's perhaps to make it not cloying. Um, I, I just, I would have loved to hear the other mix. Um, it might not have been better. Right. I just would be interested to hear it. Sure being a fan of the Bing Crosby traditional Christmas type of music as uh, I don't know. It, I like it. it. It's probably not going to go into heavy rotation for me but um, I'm glad to have heard it. right.
0: It, last year I recorded another um, Christmas uh, Christmas song. Every moment is Christmas with you, which I again I, I found similarly charming because there is a an element of sort of evocation of doo wop of like all of uh, and I and that interests me especially filtered through Icelandic indie musicians uh, and I love the line about sitting around watching Home Alone for the hundredth time. Uh, that kind of very specific detail, um, and that, and again, a very domestic detail that it is, it's not something I knew I valued, but at the same time hearing music about actually being happy with somebody, uh, now strikes me as a very, as an idea that appeals to me and something that, that something that rock and roll really doesn't do very well.
3: Are you talking about detail or valuing domesticity?
0: Valuing domesticity.
3: Okay. Valuing
0: valuing relationships that grow and develop.
3: Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Um, But the detail thing is completely true. And I I would think I would have liked the first song better had there been just a few more beautiful details like that. Because, And I say this as a person who has never yet seen Home Alone um, and might die without seeing it. But it brings it into complete perfect focus yeah. um it's like john prine like writing yes. just pellucid
0: yeah yeah and I, and i have to say i like that line far more than i like home alone uh <laughs> I, I find home alone almost unwatchable
4: it's a cold december night the snow waves so romantic under this blanket there Room for two we sit together watching home alone for the hundredth time Wow it's so Christmasy where I love
0: I this So your turn I've been talking about this song so
3: I love the slow, sweet um, rhythm of it. And I love, I like the song itself. This is a song I would want to sing. And I suppose that's always somewhere in my head, in my measure of a Christmas song. Like I just want to be at Debbie Davis's house singing harmonies with her and Yvette Volker and her mom um, singing this song. And, yeah, it's it's just dear, but it's not cloying. Right. Um, neither of the songs is cloying. Uh, this one's just a bit more vivid for me.
0: Right. I have to say, they are so... I think one thing you hit that is very much the case for me is I have an average at best tolerance for twee, and they toe up to that line, but never cross it for me. So I'm the same way. It's like this is... You know, there's a, they, they show their smartness, uh, and at the same time, and they show their sort of, you know, their cleverness, but they never quite go over. And that to me, that balance is really important.
3: It's true. And they're having so much fun, like almost pushing a foot over the Tweed line and trying to get fouled and not doing it. And I love watching that. Um, I mean, in both songs, that's really fun. And I can think of so many friends, like smart friends who are just way less way less sentimental than I am. Um, who would like this song on that merit alone, both songs on that merit alone. Um, I'm just a corny simpleton at heart and <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's a mix just for corny simpletons and that's probably the one that would make me be like i love it and i cried because (laughs) i got a new debit card the other day and i had to cut up the old one (laughs) you know like that's the thing that happened to me this week um my old one had a puppy on it and it was really cute Um, and it had been with me in new orleans and my new one is only a virginia debit card you know like Alex, life is full of sentimentalities. This is why I write songs and, you know, it's hard to live like this. But... (laughs)
0: My first exposure to singer and actress Kristen Chenoweth came on the short-lived series Pushing Daisies in 2009, but she's better known for the musical theater, having won a Tony in 1999 for her performance in You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, and another nomination for her role for her role as Glenda the Good Witch in Wicked. She was Annabeth Schott on The West Wing and most recently, she played Mildred Layton on Apple TV Plus's Schmigadoon. I'm going to talk more to Chen with next week, since she recently released her second Christmas album, Happiness is Christmas. But first, I want to talk to her about singing with Nat King Cole on A Sentimental Christmas. I don't need a
3: Christmas tree with tinsel and lights, no sad hands or sleigh rides on.
1: Very thought of you and I forget to do.
0: What was your reaction when Jay Landers asked you to sing on that track? It was actually very emotional
5: because I had grown up with Nat King Cole's music in my house. Actually, my mom's favorite voice of all time is Nat King Cole. And I had also recorded The Very Thought of You on my own for a couple of records ago called um, The Art of Elegance. And when, it, when I came to understand it would be that song, you know, I got very excited that it would be that song because I know that song and I love that. I wondered, because I know that Natalie sang with her dad, I wondered, how he would feel, and I wanted to... Um, I wanted to make sure that if she were here, which I believe her spirit is, would she be happy because I want to make her proud as well because she sang with her dad and in a very similar way. So also I, I knew her and towards the end when she was so sick, I was much younger then, but I filled in a couple of concerts for her because she was unable to go and I actually didn't realize just how sick she was, but I know she trusted me. And so with that duet comes a lot of trust. And I wanted, to, I wanted to make them both, you know, proud. And also when you look at who else on the record, you've got, you know, a lot of my heroes like Johnny Mathis and of course Gloria Estefan and John Legend. And I wanted to, I just wanted to be, I wanted to be great. Right. <laughs> I always want to be great but especially here you know
0: yeah yeah I get that so you, the very thought of you isn't wasn't originally a christmas song tell me how you made it into one
5: I wish I could take the credit um but I got the the uh new lyrics from Jay Landers and I thought they were genius and I knew he had had permission to, to, to change them, and suddenly it became a Christmas song. Uh, uh, uh. And then I also was in the studio with Jay, which makes, makes you also relaxed, and with Tim Davis, who I worked with on Glee, and just knowing that, you know, they were there and, and that the whole family, uh, the state of Nat King Cole was very happy with these words, made me relax and be able to really sing them.
0: Oh, that's great. So one of the things that struck me while listening to the album as a whole, and particularly your song, is that Cole found a way to sing in a way that approximated everyday speech. How did that yeah. affect the way you sang your part?
5: Well, I mean, singing is speaking, but it's it's on pitch. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's the what I've always been taught by my teacher. And so I think that's one of the reasons why these singers of a certain era really speak to me Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, because they understood the same role, Judy Garland, even Liza, they understood the same role That it's singing is spe- is speaking on pitch, and so when you're when you're with you know Mr. Cole, you want to make sure to match that. But I I've had that firm belief in my own work, so it didn't seem all that uh, foreign to me. Just sing what you, what you speak and speak what you mean. Right. Which is why, which is why people loved. of course he had the voice of butter, you know, butter and just yeah, angelic, yeah. but he, he came through the recording and he meant what he said. So.
0: Right.
4: So
5: what
0: did you learn about Nat King Cole's a singer while working on this project and thinking about how to sing with him?
5: Well, one of the things that I was reminded of, besides just speaking on pitch and, you know, keeping it real to so to speak, which seems so easy, right? right. Is that Nat wasn't was born during a time when he had so much struggles with his race and you know, he had a sound that fulfilled a a lot of people, it wasn't just one sound. It, it, you listen to Nat King Cole and it's, you know you don't think a black man or a white man or an um, Asian man, you think for everybody. And that's the kind of singer I want to be and strive to be. And I'm obviously, you know, Native American heritage but we, we all need to be proud of who we are. And Nat King Cole was proud of who he was, as he should be, as he should be, and of his race and his religion and who he was as a person. And think, I think all of those things come through, comes through when he sings.
0: Yeah, oh, I think that's true. So what role did Christmas music play in your holidays growing up?
5: I think probably the very first thing I remember was Christmas music. Um in my house, Christmas is a big deal and, and I think we started listening to Christmas on Thanksgiving. I never think it's too early. People say, when is it time? I'm like, now. Now, start now. Don't start with me, start with Nat and, and obviously um, Frank and Tony and then go down to Judy and then eventually come to me. But but don't definitely start with the greats of a time. Again, when lyric was so important when the lyrics were so important and, uh, we, you know, my mother and father are not musicians, but they love music. So thank goodness for me. I, I listened to Bernstein as well as Willie Nelson. And, you know, wow. we had a wide scape of what we heard and that went into my, my bones into my DNA and I'm so glad they were that way because I think that's why I love all kinds of music because of what I heard and Christmas time, you know, everybody's got a Christmas album. I've now got two. And even if you don't believe in Christmas for, you know, what we, what I believe in it for it, you can't help, but smile. You can't help, but go, this is the most wonderful time of the year. People get a little kinder, a little bit more aware. And I think with the past two years of Christmas being canceled, so to speak, we're ready for it. We need it, in fact.
1: It's just the thought of you.
4: The very thought of you.
1: Ma.
0: Finally, British singer Callum Scott made his mark in 2015 when he won Britain's Got Talent. And he has since released one album, Only Human, a number of EPs, and a bunch of non-album singles, none of which have had the impact in the United States that they've had in England. He's been working on a new album, and Fighting a Cold, but we finally got time to talk earlier this week about his part on A Sentimental Christmas, as well as other Christmas music he's recorded so far. Let's start with him and Nat King Cole singing, Oh Holy Night, and then we'll take it from there.
1: Oh Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth.
0: So to start with, why did you sign on to sing this duet with Nat King Cole?
6: So, I mean, the the relationship that I have with Nat King Cole goes way back to when I was a little boy and my grandma was a huge Nat King Cole fan. So she would play the records around the house when we were at the house. And obviously I was so young that I don't remember necessarily the songs, but I definitely had that feel of you know uh, an incredible very talented soulful singer around me when I was younger fast forward to when I was signed by Capitol, and a request came in for me to cover uh, a song by I can call called Around the World for a remake of uh, Four Weddings in a Funeral on Netflix and that was like a big moment for me um, unfortunately, my grandma has, isn't around. She wasn't around to see that collaboration, which was it's like soul destroying, really. But I know that she would have been so like impressed and happy. And my granddad was over the moon with the the cover of Around the World song. And then fast forward again, uh, and I got the opportunity. You know, Capital had said we we've got this reimagined Christmas album. And there's going to be some, you know, some amazing names joining that can call on some duets, and we'd love you to be part of that. Didn't have to ask me twice; I was straight straight in there. Um, they asked me if I would like to do Oh Holy Night, which, if I've got to be brutally honest, Oh Holy Night wasn't one of my favourite songs because it's not as catchy as you know, Have mm-hmm. a Holy Jolly. You know, it's not it's not one of those kind of like instantly recognisable songs. It's a, it's a little, and a little bit more sort of religious, I guess, um, in some context, but. I heard the song and when I was singing with him, I was just like, this has become my favourite Christmas song ever. I mean, it's just <laughs> such a beautiful song and Nat's, Nat's vocal just bellowing out and then me sort of like riding that with him and and sort of coming in and out of mine and Nat's parts is just... I mean, we recorded it um, in... Abbey Road, but I also got to record it in Capitol Records Studio, and recording it there. I mean, I'm not one for being like of the you know spiritual, paranormal, whatever you want to call it, but I've never felt anything quite like it in my life. We was I was stood, I was surrounded by all these incredible microphones, and in front of me was Frank Sinatra's microphone, and there was a bit of a full 360 moment anyway, because after being signed to Capitol Records you know, they asked me to sing on his mic and be accompanied by Nat King Cole's piano and it was very kind of mad. And then, you know, when I went there again to record this song, I think it, it felt quite 360 in the, fact, in the fact that I was back there singing a Nat King Cole song, singing with him more so. Um, and when when the song started, obviously Nat's vocals was coming out the, the speakers and I was in, like, so in trance, took me straight back to when I first heard it and they asked me to do it. It was just in trance back his voice and then when i was singing with him it, it just felt really good but it was when we were singing together there was this like sensation that i had and i was like it, I, I finished the song and there's this huge like ending with the with both of our vocals soaring off into the distance and i just went all goosey and i went over to my manager and i was like i don't usually i'm not usually one for this kind of thing but i feel like he was there i know that's a bizarre thing to say but it was just i don't know whether it was the capital studios the fact that he's sang in that room you know the fact that it was his voice and my voice together i don't know what it was but it was the most surreal but most beautiful feeling um and you know the fact that that's then entwined with christmas and The whole thing, I mean, it's just so magic. I'm so, so glad that I was given the opportunity. Honestly, Alex, really am.
0: Oh, that's great. So how did the way he sang it influence your vocal choices?
6: Well, I mean, Nat's got a a voice unlike any other. It's very soulful, gentle in parts, powerful in others. Um, And the way that it was recorded especially was, I think, the main um worry of mine and and the reason i say that is because obviously back then the recording equipment was different and i was told that when nat recorded this song in particular he had an ear off of his headphones and so what happened was you would get bleed that would come in through the track and it would go into the vocal and that meant that it was quite hard for um, the mixing engineer to be able to uh, totally separate his voice from the track, so it meant that when we was mixing, it was quite limited of what of how we could affect the vocal, and obviously my voice is is totally different, um, man's sometimes raspy, quite clean, um, it's a bit more of a of a contemporary vocal, dare I say. Um, and so it was at first. I was a bit worried that it wouldn't sound right, and that it would sound a bit too like. I was thinking maybe I should be, you know, having some warmth in my voice. Sh- sh- you know, is, am I right? am I the right fit. But having listened to it since, I mean, it it just sounds gorgeous. And in, in if anything, the two the contrast of the two voices kind of just adds that magic to it you know if it was too similar there wouldn't necessarily be a distinguishing factor but you know i I did say to you know the guys i was like one thing that i am very kind of passionate about is i really don't want to step on his toes i really don't want to i want to do this in the most respectful way possible so we had a bit of a kind of juggle of of what what kind of phrases that i would take and what what he would take and i even sat even when we were recording Abbey Road, sat with my vocal coach saying, like, I just don't want to be disrespectful. You know, I want to pay total homage to him. So it was it was a little bit of like a, a bit tricky figuring it out. But I think the result that we've got is just, it's just beautiful, Alex. I'm so, right. I mean, you can see by my face, I'm just yeah. like, I'm just so happy with it.
0: Well, I have to say, one of the things I really enjoyed and the reason I asked that question was because you present a clear contrast and you know that he approaches the song in a very kind of plain spoken but obviously sung way. And it occurred to me while I was listening to your performance that if you did if you met him there, you would both be doing the same thing. And instead you give a a, a grander and as you say, more contemporary performance so that there's a reason for the both of you to be on the track together.
6: Right. And I mean, I, what I didn't do was listen to previous works or, um, I didn't want to familiarize myself too much with it because one thing I love to do when I'm working with other people is just go in the room and I have a great feeling for people and I I love to work there and then in the moment. And that's kind of, I quite liked the fact that even at Abbey Road, we were kind of still working things out because, You don't want to have everything too pre-prepared, you know. Sometimes you can over rehearse or be too prepared for something. So I didn't listen to because obviously I'm aware that he he's worked with um, you know there's the uh, there's all the other different duets on the album, um, you know, including John Legend and and all all the rest of those incredible artists. And I and I didn't want to confuse myself too much with that. Um, What I did was I tried to go in be as respectful as possible, but also be like, whoa! I get to sing with that king call. Enjoy myself, you know, because those kind of opportunities just do not happen right. to somebody like me <laughs> in York <laughs> or in England. It just—I I said that to the producer. I was just like, I can't believe that I've got this opportunity. It's just insane.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing I realized—I had always assumed that I think it's wrong based on what you're telling me. I always figured that you went in and you sang it and then the producer cut the two versions together. Are you saying that basically they were in the studio and they, basically you only sang your parts?
6: So what happened was I got a, um, I got Nat King Cole's uh, vocal on a track with parts missing, but then I also had like a guide vocal just so that I could get, cause like I said, Oh Holy Night was, I wasn't a massive fan of the song, didn't really know it that much. Um, and so there was a guide vocal on there just to give some uh, idea of melody and all that kind of stuff. But as soon as I'd started establishing myself on the melody, I took the guide vocal away and then just sort of uh, interpreted the way I I do. I mean, you know, there's an argument to say that my step on the ladder of music was interpreting music. So sure. I kind of wanted to make sure that I went to that and went to that place and made sure that it came from. From me, because as as respectful as I wanted to to be, and as you know, as as grateful for the opportunity that I was, I had to also be Calum Scott on the record. You know, I wanted my fans to have that magic of me being there, not kind of being a deer caught in headlights, but more delivering the performance. And I feel like you know, with with you know that balance of respecting him and also delivering the vocal as I did, I think it comes across. I oh, am sure. I'm, I'm I'm a huge huge. Uh, fan of you know collaborations of people coming together i would have never thought that my vocal would have gone with that um you know in the same way that with my other with my other projects like on a i've got a dance record at the minute with lost frequencies and it's like you know i've always been a little bit cagey about is my voice gonna sue in different areas and different projects because i'm a big you know i like to stand in front of a mic stand and just deliver the songs that i write Um, But it was a, it was a true pleasure to see that uh, those two, you know, the voices just blend together perfectly. And yeah, and the arrangement is gorgeous. And yeah, as you can see, I love everything about it.
0: Thanks to Jay, Kristen, Callum, and Alexandra for the time and the talk. I really enjoyed this episode. And if you've got thoughts, I'd love to hear them on Facebook at Twelve Songs of Christmas, or you can write me at alex at I still have my listeners only Christmas mix available for download. Again, write me at alex at and I'll fire it over. If you want to hear Alexandra's music, you can find it at Alexandrascott bandcamp.com bandcamp's a great way to get music from independent artists because they get a bigger piece of every dollar there than they do from other platforms thanks to car Floats for their sponsorship and thanks to you for listening if you haven't done so already follow like subscribe or do what you have to do to get 12 songs in your podcast feed if you're an apple person i'd love a five-star review not for me or my ego but because all those things help the algorithm work in our favor. But it's good for me and the ego, too. Let's finish today with a new song from British singer Gabrielle Applin, who recently released her cover of Lowe's Just Like Christmas. My interview last year with Alan and Mimi from Lowe is a special one for me, in part because their slowcore Christmas is a modern holiday masterpiece, but also because the conversation seemed surprisingly intimate and went into some unexpected places. I'll put a link to it in the show notes so you can check it out. Here's Gabrielle Applin's version of Just Like Christmas. Talk to you next week.
3: On